Welcome to Catholics Across the Aisle, the podcast of the Florida Conference of Catholic Bishops, offering commentary on public policy and civic life. This is Michael Sheedy, Executive Director of the Conference. Welcome to part one of a three-part podcast series with Dale Resinella, Catholic Correctional Chaplain at Florida's Death Row. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Dale Resinella, Catholic Lay Chaplain on Florida's Death Row, really for decades now. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Well, thank you, Michael. And I really appreciate you having me be part of this activity of getting the word out to our brothers and sisters out there in the audience about what is really happening with such a crucial issue as the death penalty, not just with our church, but also with our society here in the United States. Now, Dale, you have uh, long served in this capacity um, as a chaplain at death row. Maybe you could just tell us more about that role and, and how, it, how that plays out and has played out over the years. Well, for many years, I used to joke that I'm involved in fuller brush Christianity because all the people on death row and in solitary are in single cells behind bars in the space where they have their bunk, their toilet, their sink, and a small property locker to keep their personal stuff in. And basically, the role is going cell to cell to cell down the corridors and bringing each person the good news and whatever I can to cheer them up or also to find out what's going on in their life. And it reminded me of the Fuller Brush salesman that used to come through our neighborhood once a month in Detroit, where I grew up in an Italian Catholic neighborhood. But as I got older, nobody has heard of Fuller Brushmen. <laughs> and so now that I'm hitting on 70, it's time to not use that analogy anymore. But that's what I do. I'm a lay pastoral minister for cell front, which means walking on the corridor, the walkway that goes right in front of the cells. And uh, it's very intimate. There's no way the guys in the cells can conceal themselves. And so we have to learn to give them privacy by averting our eyes and also to ask them, do they want to visit today? Sometimes they will say no or they'll just put up their hand. And you know they they really don't want to talk today. You don't know what's going on, but you'll find out the next time. But the overwhelming majority will say, yeah, sure. Can you stay longer this time? And that's not surprising because when your whole world has been reduced to a six by nine foot cell or a six by 10 in some of the corridors at Union Correctional Institution, think of all the things in our life that wouldn't fit. When I'm speaking with high school and college students around Florida and around the country, I found that the best way to try and get that thought across is to ask, do you have a house that has a half bathroom in it? And of course, everybody says, yeah, it's got a toilet and a sink and I bet you could get 
regulation Florida Department of Correction inmate bunk in there, too, if you needed to. But I say, picture yourself going inside that half bathroom in your house, shut the door, and stay there for 20 or 30 or 40 or more years. We've got guys that have been in those cells on death row now in Florida for 46 years. And they're just shocked. They don't even know how to get their head around it. Who can? But that is a big part of what this position entails is bringing the outside to the inmates in terms of what we're allowed to to bring. And that's basically the good news of our gospel and scripture and our faith, the sacraments, the teachings of our church, and the solidarity of the Catholics in the world who are following the lead of our popes and bishops who've begged us to get rid of this because it no longer has any proper place in our modern world. Well, Dale, I know that, um, you know, in your in this capacity, you certainly go cell front uh, to the many folks who are incarcerated. You've also had to, to experience um, ministering to folks who are on death watch or you've been on death watch with them. Uh, that's that's also an important part, I think, of that ministry that you have exercised. It is. And I've been on death watch probably 40 some times. It doesn't always go through. Sometimes there's stays. Sometimes they're short. Sometimes they're permanent. Sometimes the person has been commuted and given life because it turns out that in the courts looking at this case that everybody thought was a slam dunk for execution for 20 or 30 years, the courts look at one last time and they say, wait a minute, there's real problems here. They never proved that this is the guy that did it. I had one case where the fellow did get executed a year later with no additional evidence. And Harry Lee Anston, at that time, the Catholic justice on the U.S. Supreme Court, looked at what this man had been convicted with, which was basically there was no evidence. And I was there at the oral argument, and he stood up and he said, this is a travesty. But the vote was 6-1 because the state asserted was called procedural bar, which is a technical legal procedure, a rule that says after a certain important time, the court can't hear any new evidence. It has nothing to do with whether or not the evidence is legitimate and shows that this person is innocent. They just assert procedural bar and say, it can't be heard. We have to have closure. And most of the time they win with that. I can't tell you how many of the most recent executions I've been there for the condemned who's being executed. And my wife has been with their family during the execution. And the evidence didn't hold up. Michael Lambricks, oral argument on Michael Lambricks's case, the state admitted that the state's evidence could support his claim of self-defense as well as the claim of first-degree murder. But he couldn't assert self-defense because it was procedurally barred. 
Anybody who knows anything about what's in the Bible about capital punishment knows that is an abomination to Scripture. Mm-hmm. But procedural bar is a big thing in Florida, and I've had very few of the 19 executions I've attended where the state didn't assert it to keep evidence of innocence or mistake or confusion or mental disability out. Mm. And the person got executed in the state one. Wow. And just for clarity's sake, um, death watch is when there's a warrant has been signed in a particular case. And the yes. person is moved to a special part of, of the prison. Well, death row now is all at Union Correctional, mm-hmm. which is right next door to Florida State Prison. They're separated by a creek called New River, but you can't even find it during the dry months. During the wet months, you can see a trickle. And... Uh, Florida State Prison is where the death house is. Now, we have 340 men on death row in Florida. About 20 of them right now still have cases pending for having new sentencing hearings because their sentencing to death wasn't done properly. And so they're on death row, but they're not right now subject to a death sentence. But we also have women on death row in Florida. And my best recollection is we have three or four at this time. Several have been commuted because of problems with the evidence. But my wife and I are also pastoral advisors to a woman on death row. The female death row is down at Lowell Correctional, which is just south of Orlando. And when those women have their warrants signed, like Eileen Warnes did about a decade ago, they are immediately moved from the death row prison for women to Florida State Prison to the death house. So everyone who's got a scheduled date for execution in Florida is in the death house at Florida State Prison up here in Stark. Now, Dale, I've had the privilege of knowing you for many years. Um, For listeners, I think they would be interested to know a little bit about your background and how you actually arrived in this role, kind of shifting from having a successful legal practice, being a Wall Street finance lawyer, to really transitioning to more full-time ministry. I think it's, I never tire of hearing about it. I have to, in humility, share this story from death row cell front, because when I was first there in 1998, introducing myself to the men one at a time, they had heard I was a lawyer. And one of them asked, what kind of law did you practice? And I said, Wall Street Finance out of Florida. And this guy was pretty astute. He understood all the ramifications of that. And he stepped back and he said, well, actually, that's good news. And I said, why is that? And he said, if Jesus could save a scrounging, scumbag, Wall Street lawyer, he'll have no problem forgiving me. And I thought to myself, Lord, I don't mind you using my personal journey to help people come to the gospel, but this isn't quite what I had in mind. (laughs) So I had about a 23, 24-year career in Wall Street finance, mainly projects, big projects, seaports, airports, sports stadiums, sports stadiums. You know it's time for you to go out to pasture when the premier project of your first career, which for me was Dolphin Stadium, is being renovated because it's obsolete. (laughs) 
<laughs> but in any event, be that as it may, it was a great career. I loved it. I did it all over the United States, projects all over the U.S., and worked with international banks and international investors and Fortune 500s and all that. That was all part of it. But my sweet wife, Susan, who you'll hear more about, uh, and I came to a point where we said it's time to get back. And we wanted to find a way to serve the people who Jesus is talking about when he says what you did for the least. And we went and got involved in street ministry here in Tallahassee in a pretty interesting area at that time. It was where the soup kitchen was. It's called Good News Ministries. Uh, Dave Stewart is retired, but Rick Carney is still here in Tallahassee doing great things for people that need help. And I was with them down at Good News for seven and a half years. And what materialized at that time was 1989, 1990, was the scourge of AIDS. And so Susan and I so well, this is what's in front of us. We're not looking for it, but this is what God put in front of us. We took the state training to work. I took the training to work as a buddy with people dying of AIDS. Susan took the training to work with their families and their caregivers, their loved ones. Who could have imagined that the very same roles would be what we would be doing on death row a quarter century later? No one can see that far. I couldn't see that far. Every time I got involved doing something, I said, well, this must be what we're going to do for the rest of our life. <laughs> I thought that about Project Finance, and I thought that about AIDS ministry, and here we are. But in any event, uh, that was a real eye-opener. And I got called by a Southern Baptist state chaplain out of the panhandle whose son had been one of my clients when I was doing project finance. And he said, my son told me what you're doing. And he said, I'm at a 2,000-man prison in the panhandle. And the staff has informed me that 40% of our inmates here are HIV positive. And I've got men going into end stage of AIDS. And he said, and I can't get anybody to come in and minister to them because, as he said, he was from Alabama. They're all skeered. Wonderful guy. I miss him. He passed away a few years ago. Great man in the Lord. But uh, he said, I've heard about what you're doing for my son, and you're not scared. Will you come and minister to the inmates with AIDS in my prison? Now, I gave him what I call the Christian punch. <laughs> Oh, chaplain, I am overwhelmed by your thinking that God would deem it appropriate to call me to such a task. I and my wife and family will put this on the altar of the Lord, and we will begin praying about it. And I got off the phone, and I said to myself, there is no way God could call me to do that. Not because of the AIDS, but because I never wanted to go into a building that was locked and I didn't have a key to get out. Mm -hmm. I don't know what you call it, but I certainly wasn't going to go into a jail and I was not going to go into a prison, whether people had AIDS or whatever. I had no interest in doing that. Well, we sat down at the dining room table and shared this with our kids and they all went and got their Bibles. We've been doing a lot of Lexio Divina at home with the family and with friends and all from Good Shepherd. And that was our parish at that time. Now it's our parish again. And my kids, starting with my ninth grader, opened their Bibles and read to me from Matthew 
Whatever you do for the least, you do for me. Whatever you didn't do for the least, you refused to do for me. And I'm paraphrasing for time. And my kids said, Dad, you've been telling us for years that this is what we're supposed to do. How can you not go? The family meeting, we had a vote. It was six in favor of Dad going to prison, including my wife, and one abstention, me. I said, well, who can you appeal to? I went to my pastor. He bust out laughing. He knew me well. We'd known each other for years at that point, Father Michael Foley. And he said, well, what I do know for sure is you didn't come up with this. And I said, you mean it's from God? He said, well, I can't say for sure, but I know you didn't come up with it. So I went to my spiritual advisor from Cincinnati, Murray Bodo, the Franciscan author who had been my spiritual advisor in ninth and 10th grade in Franciscan Minor Seminary in Cincinnati. And he said, well, I don't, he spent a week praying about it. He said, I don't usually get a strong feeling one way or the other, but on this one, I just can't shake the feeling that if you say no to this, you're saying no to God's plan for your life. I should have been overjoyed that I had clarity, but I don't want to tell you my response to myself. It's not printable. (laughs) But I knew I couldn't sit there and go against my family, my kids, my wife, my pastor, and my spiritual advisor from minor seminary. So I just said, fine, God, I give up. You got me. I'll go, but I don't have to like it. That's when I learned the prayer. Lord, move my feet. I've had to use that prayer a lot, especially for executions. When I know what I'm going to see, and what the state of the inmate's family is going to be when they arrive at 8 o'clock, and what his state's going to be when I get back together with him in the death house at 1 to go through the afternoon with him. And what I'm going to have to watch as I watch the state kill him. A healthy person who cannot harm anybody. He's been rendered harmless by our security procedures. So, Lord, move my feet. And that was how I ended up going into prison. It wasn't until years later that I was asked by Father Joe Mariangat, the uncle, at St. Mary's of McClinney, who had been handling death row by himself at that time for 17 years, if I would be willing to shadow him for a year for him to train me and to take over the self-front ministry as a layperson, which is what we did. And he was able to retire, which he needed to do. And then uh, we've had many wonderful pastors since who have also stepped into the roles of the priest. But with the lay people handling self-front, it greatly reduces the burden on the priest who's responsible so that he can spend more time with solitary confinement, he can spend more time with the parish, and he can take care of all the other responsibilities our priests have, especially the sacramental, the things only a priest can do. And that's been working as a team blueprint since 1998. You know, I know that as I've gotten to know more about you and your ministry there, Dale, and knowing that you were an attorney with a certain role and, and all these inmates need attorneys. Um, you also serve as a spiritual advisor and a chaplain, but you're, you're a layman and not a priest. You There are all these different needs and different boundaries and roles that you've had to kind of establish there. Maybe you could just say a little bit more about that because it sheds a little bit more light too on just the situation of the men and the women who are, who are on death row. Men and the women, absolutely. 
Uh, if you've got an expiration date tattooed on your foot, figuratively speaking, with a death warrant, you don't know what date it's going to be, but you know it's coming, and uh, it's not going to be natural death. And so the men and the women are all standing under what we used to call, with a classical education from the friars, the sword of Damocles, which is a sword dangling over your head that you can't get out from under, and it's on a thin thread. And if that thread breaks, you will be pierced from top to bottom to the center. And that's what it's like to be on death row. (laughs) How do you go from law practice at what was considered one of the highest levels? I mean, it was with the top firms in Florida. And when we did go to Rome for two years, I was with Baker and McKenzie, which is the top firm in the world for project finance. I wasn't handling the deals, but I was teaching their European associates how to handle the deals. We were over there for two years studying our faith. We had no idea what we were going to do when we came back. We came back to this, uh, this work. But in any event, how do you go? Well, the first thing that happened is God made it easy. (laughs) He must have known I would try and hang on if he gave me any stretch at all. The chaplain at the death row prison, when I was introduced to him by Father Joe in August of 1998, as the fellow who was going to be training for a year to take over from him, said, well, we've got to get the warden. And they ended up getting the warden and the assistant warden and the chaplain. And we got on a conference call down there and they called Central Office of Florida Department of Corrections. And as soon as I heard the voice of the guy who was assigned to handle this call, I guess field this call would be a better verb. Uh, I knew who it was by his voice. Because one of the last things I did before we went to Rome was handle a prison financing private sector for a Florida Department of Corrections prison that they were going to own, but that was going to be operated privately. And he was the guy responsible to work with me to get it done. At that time, he was a uh, assistant secretary. And so he said, there can't be too many Dales that were doing project finance. Are you the deal, Restinella, that handled that prison project? And I said, yes. And I called him by his first name, actually a nickname. And I said, yeah, how you been? He said, we can't let you in our prisons. I said, why? Did I offend you? He said, no, you're a lawyer. If we let you go cell front in death row and solitary, you're going to have 400 in that time. It was 420 death row inmates and two and a half thousand solitary confinement inmates asking you to handle their case. And if you say no, they're going to stick a shiv in you. I said, well, I'm not planning to practice law, but I need to keep my license because I'm a lay person. I don't get I don't get paid for this. And so if anything happens to my wife's ability to work in her professional career, which she had returned to when we came back from Rome, I have to be able to go back into my professional career and make sure everybody in my family has everything they need. So i got to keep my license. What we negotiated was I agreed I would refrain from all practice of law 
including pro bono, all the stuff you do to be good, everything, even for my annual renewal for my Florida bar license, I can't do pro bono hours. Uh, I have to pay the alternative fee. I said, I will notify you in writing, certified mail, at least a month ahead of time if I ever find I have to go back into the practice law. Until the DOC gets that notification, you know that you have my word that I will not practice law. I'll keep my license, my license, I'll do my CLEs, but I will not practice law. It's been 24 years. I've been good to my word. They've been good to theirs. We don't have anything in writing, but I I trust their good faith. And uh, that particular gentleman has moved on. He's gone to going home to Jesus. He was a very strong Christian. But uh, many other good people have stepped into that position. And we have continued to keep focused on how do we keep bringing the good news. And in the case of those who are Catholic or want to become Catholic, the sacraments to facilitate allowing these men to redeem their time in these six-by-nine-foot cages by bringing Jesus to them in a tangible way, which is part of the Catholic faith. Not every tradition does that, but it is a great part of our tradition. It's extremely important to us as Catholics, and it's extremely important to the men in those cells who participate in our tradition. And I've always been struck at um, what a fruitful vineyard that has been, you know, for for people like. I think of uh, the inmate who told you, I want to become Catholic. I want to be part of the church that wants to be part of me, part of my life. 